0: Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Now, when you think of the Navy SEALs, you think of elite special operators who've been tasked with commando-type missions in conflict zones from Central Africa to Afghanistan, which raises a question you may never have thought about, but seems quite obvious and interesting once you do. Wait, why are members of the Navy a waterborne military force operating hundreds of miles from the nearest ocean. This question spurred my guest, a former Navy SEAL himself, to explore the answer in his book, By Water Beneath the Walls, The Rise of the Navy SEALs. His name is Benjamin Milligan, and today we discuss the history that explains why the Navy became the branch of the military that supplied this famous go-anywhere force, and how men who started out as sailors became involved in land-based operations. Ben details the predecessors of the SEALs, which took the form of various commando-type units that both the Army and Marines experimented with, but ultimately scuttled, and how the Navy, which had played a supporting role in all these units, ended up being the one to continue to develop them. We discuss how the Naval Combat Demolition Units, or NCDUs, and Underwater Demolition Teams, or UDTs, that were birthed during World War II, would ultimately lead to the creation of the Navy's Frogmen as we know them today. Along the way, Ben shares details of the unique characters who shaped the unit's trajectory, including the surprisingly bookish commander who created the most legendary part of the SEAL's training, Hell Week. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash SEALs. Ben Milligan, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. So you are a Navy SEAL, and you just published a book it's called By Water Beneath the Walls, The Rise of the Navy SEALs. And this is an in-depth history of the origins of the SEALs. And what's funny, or interesting, interesting and funny, that there was a question from your grandma about your service as a SEAL that kickstarted this book. What was that question, and then how did that
1: send you in a deep dive into the history of the Navy SEALs? Uh, The question was, uh, what the hell were you doing in Iraq? (laughs) I mean, she knew that I was in the Navy. She knew I was a sailor. And... (laughs) For her, she you know she'd grown up during World War Two. She had seven brothers that were all in the Navy during World War Two. She'd been to my bud's graduation in two thousand one, and you know there she had kind of gotten you know a reinforcement of the idea that you know the Navy is connected to the water, which we all know that it is. I suspect she'd seen the introduction video to all the uh, the guests kind of show what the graduates have just gone through they you know it shows surf torture and surf passage and underwater knot tying and drown proofing and all that stuff and the diving i don't know if she just didn't notice all the hiking and the machine guns and and everything but she i think until the day she died she thought that i was uh, you know something like a rescue swimmer so it wasn't uh, totally off the wall question yeah, she, she, she was curious and, you know, my, my response to her was maybe sort of a condescending, you know, I'm not a sailor. I'm a seal fully expecting that she would know the difference, but she, <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it was the, the way that I answered the question because I'm very close to my grandma and, uh, or what, but the question just sort of stuck with me. It didn't come back or I didn't come back to it really until 2011 after the extortion, uh, one seven uh, tragedy when all of the, Seals of Gold Squadron were shot down in Afghanistan. And they started to, to really think, what are we? Or what, what are the SEAL teams doing, you know, so far removed from the water? I mean, and that was three months and four days after SEALs had killed Osama bin Laden. Both of these events, the greatest victory in the war on terror and then the, you know, the the largest loss of life for American forces in Afghanistan. They, they happened more than uh, 600 miles away from the closest saltwater and they were both held by uh, a Navy unit. So that was a question that I saw felt like I had to get to the bottom of. And in getting to the bottom of the
0: question in your book by tracing the history of the seals, one thing you do is to get beyond the kind of myth of how the seals came about. What do you think that myth is?
1: Yeah, the the myth is has always been that the frogmen created themselves, like they sort of self-actualized a generous appraisal for, you know, everybody wants to, you know, assume that their success is due to their own effort and struggle or whatever. And so the origin story or the creation myth is that enterprising frogmen after World War II were looking for a mission or looking to stretch the boundaries of maritime warfare. And they just kept following the enemy inland. And, you know, this was always done against the Navy's wishes. You know, there was always a hostile bureaucracy trying to keep the seals contained to the water, or not seals necessarily, but UDT or the frogmen. And then when Kennedy came along, he he you know authorized you know this encroachment by the Navy, and then after that you know authorization, then the SEALs even pushed the breadth of their mission even further. But the more I thought about it, and in fact, like when I was doing the initial research for the book, I was just sort of keeping like a a timeline in a word document. This timeline just kept getting bigger and bigger every day. And the, the one thing I started to really notice is. This didn't happen accidentally, and it didn't happen against the Navy's wishes. The Navy doesn't work like that. The military doesn't work like that. The military is—it's the most hierarchical institution in in the government. So, I mean, nothing happens without the, the by with and through or the approval of uh, you know senior leadership. So, the one thing that I noticed is that you know this would not have happened. If the Navy had not championed the idea itself. And that means the Navy's planners, the top leaders in the Navy. So I realized fairly early on that this seal origin story or the seal creation myth was just that it was a myth you know I think it it resonated or I think it it persisted for such a long time because you know if you are a seal or if you are in special operations just generally, you've had experiences with conventional troops or conventional sailors you know who have not always had the highest opinion of elite troops, and so you know that i that myth was just reinforced time after time when. In fact it's you know that that grain of truth is just that it's just a grain it's not uh, it's not the real the real story the real story is much richer and much uh, much more interesting. All right, so the
0: seals specialize they what would you call a commando or raider type operations? Just big picture for those who aren't familiar. I mean, I think we kind of know what the difference is, but
1: what is the difference between like raider warfare and traditional warfare? Yeah, it's like, you know, like pornography almost. You you kind of know it when you see it. But I mean, the word commando came out of uh, the Boer War. Churchill sort of coined it to describe the, the Afrikaner troops that would raid in the middle of the night and then disappear into the darkness. But, you know, we've had, there've been raiders throughout history, you know, whether they were... Plains Indians or Vikings or whatever. Soldiers can be raiders. Sailors have been raiders. We've always had raiders in, in warfare. But yeah, so in, when World War II starts, the British Expeditionary Force had just been chased off the continent by the Germans. And Churchill's purpose in creating, you know, his commandos was to, you know, one, restore the morale of the British people. And two, to achieve more with less, you know, know, some sort of strategic impact with the the few troops that he had. So the only way that he could really do that was with uh, a series of, you know, lightning raids up and down the coast. So that's where we get the term commando. And that's what commando operations really are. It's just, you know, instead of regular troops, they they may, you know, perform a behind the lines action or something like that. But often, more often than not, they're holding ground after they've, you know, advanced to something raiders don't do that or commandos don't do that or at least the traditional uh, understanding of the the term so commandos or raiders they they strike behind the lines and you know usually a, a vulnerable target and then once they've achieved their objective then they usually are you know fleeing back into the darkness okay so uh, the british military sort of, sort of kick started the whole
0: commando type warfare in World War II it was out of necessity they didn't have enough troops they had to get the most bang for their buck. then the us military saw this and was like, hey, maybe we should try that, but I think okay, so you sort these, of yeah, sort of like that but we, we can talk about that yeah, but I think there's interesting here you make this one of the points you make is to understand why the Navy ended up creating a special forces unit capable of operating on land, sea and air. you have to understand. You have to explore, like, why didn't the army, or why didn't the Marine Corps come up? Why weren't they able to come up?
1: Come up with commando units, and so, right. like, let's, so yeah. yeah, let's start there. So, yeah, like, the point I'm making the book is that you know the well the reason that the the Navy created a a unit that could go anywhere or a commando unit that could go anywhere is not in spite of the army and Navy; it's actually because of them. When when you look at the you know Bin Laden raid. Bin Laden raid occurred in Abbottabad, Pakistan. I think the last time I looked, it was Abbottabad was something like eight hundred miles away from the closest saltwater. If you were planning that that mission, not knowing anything about you know the U.S. military or its history or its uh, order of battle, you wouldn't choose a navy unit. You wouldn't expect to choose a navy unit. So it's a totally unexpected. Or the why is why? How did a navy unit you know come to be relied upon by the U.S. military as such a go anywhere commando force? Instead, when you phrase it like that, you have to, you know, assume that the rest of the, you know, the sentence is implying that instead of the Army or the Marine Corps, you know, the, these institutions that are the traditional owners of uh, land operations. What I found was when I, like, like I said, when I was laying that timeline out, I, I, I noticed the army and the Marine Corps always had this very sort of haphazard relationship with commando type operations. They, they'd sort of want them at one point. They were trying to you know, fill, you know, some sort of need or they would create them, not necessarily for the same reasons that Churchill wanted them for their own peculiar reasons. They were creating commandos for, for a purpose and then. You know, they would commit them to action. Usually the, that action would lead to some sort of disaster. And then the army would say, well, you know, let's back off that idea. And they would just disband the unit. And in each time, not each time, but almost every time the Navy had sort of come to expect that the Army or the Marine Corps was going to be a partner when it came to commando type raiding, because the, the Navy was usually, you know, sort of in the wings of all these operations. And each time the Army or the Marine Corps pulled the rug out of these operations, the Navy was just left holding the bag. So the Navy just can continue to, when the Army or the Marine Corps left, it would just push just a little bit further, a little bit further each time, try you know, not necessarily with a long-range idea that they were going to create a go-anywhere commando force, but they were just trying to solve a problem. And the, that problem was filling a gap, and they would just continue to fill that gap. And ultimately, after 30 years, <laughs> the SEALs are created. Well,
0: and you do a good job of exploring the the Marine Corps and the the Army's sort of forays into commando-type warfare during World War II. And what, what I found interesting with each one, it seems like... And in, in the Navy was involved, somehow. And like you said, each time... These units would get dis- disbanded, but it seemed like like whatever like the the Raider unit learned, like the Navy got to keep, and it sort of just kind of got it, baked in into their into their curriculum. So like the first one you, you highlight is uh, Donovan's Raiders. This is a Marine Corps unit that would try to dabble in commandos type of warfare. What was their story? Like what was their
1: objective, and what was the result of that unit? Okay, so the, the Marine Corps Raiders are the first commando force that the U.S. military creates in World War II. The reason that they create them is because of really one personality, and that personality is Evans Carlson. He's uh, he's had a um, not a not a checkered history with the Marine Corps, but sort of an unusual history. He was he serves in Nicaragua in sort of a guerrilla war. He is attached to Mao's communist army in, in China on Mao's flight from the nationalists in in, in China. So. Carlson comes up with this idea. You know, he wants to create a marine unit that is similar to, you know, the Chinese guerrillas that he serves alongside in the 30s. So when World War II kicks off, he's befriended President Roosevelt's son, Jimmy Roosevelt. Jimmy Roosevelt sends a letter to the Commandant, and he wouldn't normally any junior officer wouldn't normally, you know, get the time of day from the Commandant. But, you know, this junior officer happens to be the president's son. So the Marine Corps. Very reluctantly, the Marine Corps has no interest in building commandos. Throughout the Marine Corps' history, they've sort of been the Navy's go-anywhere force, but after World War One, they've proven that they can be as capable as the U.S. Army. So the Marine Corps doesn't really want commandos, but... Carlson and Jimmy Roosevelt are pressuring the Marine Corps commandant to do it, and the Navy sort of picks up on this idea, and the Navy's like, well, we really could use a unit that could go out there into the Pacific, stretch the Japanese out across the Pacific. So that's a, that's essentially what happens. You know, the Navy kind of forces the Marine Corps' hand, and the Marine Corps never, like I said, they never really want these guys, and then on their first raid— Evans Carlson leads this pretty dramatic raid, you know, some 2000 miles into the northern Pacific into the Gilbert Islands that make an island. And the raid is, you know, the main reason that it's a disaster is because of Carlson's leadership. He he loses confidence. He thinks that at different points in the battle, he loses track of a lot of his men. He he thinks that Jimmy Roosevelt's going to get captured. Ultimately, he resolves that he's just going to surrender to the Japanese, but he can't even surrender to the Japanese because the guys that he sends with the surrender note to the Japanese commander another group of his uh, raiders end up killing that messenger so the raid just uh, turns into a disaster he ultimately i think he loses something like 18 raiders or something like that and then uh, uh, another 12 are left behind to be you know captured and ultimately beheaded so the marine corps sees this and they ultimately decide well you know we didn't want these guys to, to begin with so they petition the navy to get rid of them and the navy does but that doesn't solve the problem that the Navy's had, which is we, you know, the Navy really wants, you know, some sort of unit that can go into the Pacific, accomplish more with less, spread the Japanese out. This cycle, it almost it repeats itself time and time again, you know, throughout this commando history or throughout the American special operations, at least until the end of Vietnam.
0: Well, in another experiment that the Navy did commando warfare with, it was with the Army. It was the uh, creation of the Army scouts. And the Navy, so, this is, so they're called the Army Scouts, but like the Navy played a role. Like what was the Navy's role in the Army Scouts?
1: Each aspect of amphibious warfare kind of plays a part in creating a different sort of unit. So the Marine Corps Raiders are created because they, the Navy wants to stretch the Japanese out. They want to accomplish more with less behind-the-lines type raids. The Army, Navy, Scouts, and Raiders are created because the Army and the Navy realize that they are about to embark on a campaign across the world, literally around the entire world, where in almost each instance where they're going to confront the enemy, they're going to have to land on an enemy beach. Which for a a military that's never done that, for a military that, you know, during the First World War had, uh, had landed on the coast comfortably and walked down numerous gangplanks, they never had to land on an enemy beach or anything like that. This is a terrifying prospect. And One of the most troubling parts of, of that whole process of amphibious warfare is trying to determine how you're going to land on the right beach. You know, there's scant charts that are available. You know, there's, you know, a lot of these beaches, they don't, they're not lit. You've got to figure, you got to come up with a unit that, you know, can identify beaches and then signal the landing fleet to where those beaches actually are. You can't land an army on the backside of that beach. You know, there's no exits to move trucks, move tanks, move anything. You definitely can't land on a beach where the, the sand is too soft, you know, for tank treads or something like that. So that's what the army, navy scouts and raiders are, are meant to accomplish. So they, they create this joint unit. They divide the, you know, the both halves of of this unit into a distinct army and navy sides. The army are going to be these, you know, scout slash raiders that are going to be the ones that are landed on the beach, identify the beach, and then signal the landing fleet. The navy part of this program is going to be the unit that basically just shuttles these scout raiders back and forth. But after the invasion in North Africa and after Sicily, the army realizes, well, we have more than enough Folks that are capable of identifying beaches or signaling the landing fleet. So they pull out of the entire program, basically leaving the entire curriculum for, you know, that the Army and Navy had been developing together with the Navy. And the Navy doesn't feel like abandoning this program. They, they, the Navy, you know, sees opportunities throughout the world, throughout the Pacific, South Pacific, Central Pacific, and employing troops like these. So the Navy maintains the curriculum, but when the army leaves, now there's no more agreement that prohibits the the Navy from fielding its actual scouts. So, you know, no longer are they scout officers and scout boat crews, but they, the Navy becomes in fact scouts and actual raiders. So this is kind of, you're starting to see the encroachment into the, to the land, right? It's just that you know that that little that little nudge. You know that, like I said, the Navy never sets out with this plan in 1942 to create a commando force or a, you know a go anywhere commando force. The Navy just you know continuously solves individual problems that just keep pushing the Navy further and further ashore.
0: Another experiment with commando warfare during World War II, again by the U.S. Army, was Darby's Rangers. What was their mission, and how do they perform as a unit, and what ended up happening to them?
1: Yeah, so I don't know if you've ever seen the uh the James Garner movie, you know, Darby's rain. So Darby is one of the, you know, all time legends in American special operations history. And and deservedly so. He's a larger than life character. He's from Arkansas. He was an artillery officer before the war. And he's a, a totally irrepressible guy. Like he's uh one of the, you know, folks when I was researching and, and, and digging into the letters of the of the folks that I was writing about. Like he's a guy that you just you can't help but like him. I don't like to admit liking uh, a character or disliking a character. I don't want the to convey any of that to the reader. He's, he's very difficult not to like him. In part because he's just so so brave, uh, such an advocate for his guys, and time and time again during the war, he turns down promotions simply because he wants to stay with his rangers. The rangers are created for sort of a specific purpose by George Marshall. George Marshall has grown into the legend. You You don't ever want to criticize George Marshall. I'm not criticizing him, but he has priorities for the army that aren't necessarily beneficial to the rangers. So the priority that he has when he creates the rangers is to get as much combat experience as, as they can that they can pass along to the rest of the infantry and then really just to you know support the infantry in whatever way the division commanders want so on the one hand you've got darby who's in you know sort of this archetypal commando and on the other hand you've got George Marshall, you know, the level-headed, constantly preoccupied with his army, and between these two, the Rangers are ultimately broken just by the the competing, you know, objectives of these two men. And that breaking happens when, by early, early 1944... You know, the Rangers have stopped being commando raiders, and they've really turned into like spearheaders for the regular infantry. They're not really operating as a small unit anymore. They're operating in regiment-sized units, and they're taking not just a small fort here or an artillery battery there or something like that, like they did in the beginning, but the Army is committing them to take and hold entire towns. And the raid that they get sent on, which isn't a raid at all, is this raid on Cisterna in Italy after the invasion of Anzio. And it's a, you know, biggest disaster in American special operations history. Two battalions are destroyed and the remnants are captured and, uh, Frog marched off it, uh, into captivity with the, with the Germans. It's a real trap. I mean, it, when, it, when you, when, when I was, you know, researching this in the National Archives, you can see the transcript uh, of Darby communicating with his frontline leaders. And I don't know how they kept this transcript, but it's there and you can read page after page of it. And, it's uh, it's when you're going through the pages, I mean, it's hard to not get emotional yourself because you see what's happening to these guys and the lengths that they're going for each other. And then after, you know, this terrible debacle, the army decides, well, you know, we we don't need Rangers in this this theater anymore anyway. So we're going to disband the whole program.
0: Okay, so yeah, we're seeing over and over again, both the Army and the Marine Corps, they, they try, they experiment with it, they realize it doesn't work. And I think a, a point you make is that part of the problem with the Army and the Marine Corps is that they had already had like a culture of infantry. Like that's what you do. And so they'd often, they create these commando units, but then they'd end up treating them like infantry soldiers, like regular infantry soldiers. And like the Navy, they didn't have that, what would we call it, mindset. And so they like they were they were completely open to the idea of yeah, we could do commando type stuff.
1: Right. I mean the the army is always, you know, the army and the marine corps, they always think that, you know, raiding is really just it's an activity that any infantry troops can can perform as long as they're given enough preparation, rehearsals, special equipment, or whatever. And so, you really shouldn't pull troops out of uh, the regular line of battle to do this mission. And and they had you know relatively good reason to think so. I mean, every great raider in history, whether it was uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest or um, uh, Ulrich Dahlgren or whatever, all these folks from you know the American Civil War. They hadn't just been raiders; they had they had raided throughout the war. But after their raids, they would often just fall back in line with their regular cavalry or infantry regiments. So why wouldn't they think so? But the navy didn't have this legacy. The navy, you know, isn't constantly preoccupied with its infantry. They don't really. The army doesn't want to create an elite branch because they don't want to take all the best soldiers out of their. Infantry companies and put them into an elite unit, then you have, you know, nothing but so-so troops in the infantry regiments. Or the Navy doesn't have the problem; they're never trying to, you know, rob Peter to pay Paul. A unit like this can exist alongside the Navy, whereas it really can't, or it couldn't at the time. But you know, in the Army or the Marine Corps, we're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors.
0: It used to be hard to find the exact auto part you needed, and that meant spending a lot of time at swap meets. It's a different game now, where you can order exactly what you need from eBay Motors. They have 122 million parts, so you can always find the right fitment. Spend less time searching and more time building with eBay Motors app, or visit ebaymotors.com. Let's ride. Whether it's stress, a demanding morning schedule, or trouble sleeping, we all know that sometimes life keeps you up. And trying to conquer the day after a night of tossing and turning is not so easy. Now you can get the sleep you deserve with zequil, Pure Z's Melatonin Gummies. Zequil, Pure Z's Melatonin Gummies are designed to help you fall asleep naturally with no next-day grogginess. Made with an optimal level of melatonin combined with a proprietary blend of other botanicals like chamomile and lavender, Zequil, Pure Z's Melatonin Gummies help to regulate your sleep cycle instead of just knocking you out. They're non-habit-forming and work with your body to help you get the sleep you need. And to top it all off, they come in a great-tasting wild berry vanilla flavor. So I've been using Z-Quil Pure Z's Melatonin Gummies for the past month now, really have enjoyed it. I've used melatonin in the past to help me fall asleep when I've had trouble falling asleep. I like the Pure Z's Melatonin Gummies because, well, it comes in a gummy format and who does not like gummies? The botanical blend helps you feel nice and relaxed, drift off to sleep, and the next day, don't feel groggy. Check out Z-Quil Pure Z's Melatonin Gummies and the full line of Pure Z Sleep Aids to start sleeping soundly today. And now back to the show. So with all these experiments with um, special warfare with a, within the Army and the Marine Corps, the Navy was there somehow, either working with them directly or just their support. And then when those got disbanded, the Navy ended up with the curriculum and they saw an opportunity like, hey, we can actually do what they were trying to do. And then you really start seeing a, like an overt, uh, I guess, encroachment on the land with a guy named Draper Kaufman. And this guy has an incredible story. I mean I, I couldn't like is this real like this guy sounded it sounded made up. So what's his story and how did he pave the way for the navy creating like a like a, a an explicit like yeah, we are a commando unit separate from the navy or
1: it's part of the navy but it's distinct from a, a sailor. Yeah, he, he Draper Kaufman is uh next to Evans Carlson. Evans Carlson might be the weirdest guy in the book, but Draper Kaufman is easily easily second. <laughs> Draper is uh nobody that I, you know, look at in the book or or spend a lot of time reading reading their mail. I didn't I didn't find anybody as peculiar as as Kaufman. He's a he's a totally bookish guy. When you look at him and you see pictures of him, you're like you you wouldn't, you know, think twice of him. He he look he looks like a clerk. But nobody that I found, you know, so oblivious to danger. He was just constantly putting himself in tight spot after tight spot and volunteering for the most dangerous assignments. Anyway, so Draper Kaufman is a gets uh, dumped from naval service. He goes to the naval academy. He gets dropped from the navy after he graduates from the naval academy because he's got bad eyesight. And they, were, you know, the navy at the time was you know, trying to cut uh, costs in any way that they could. So. Which is a crushing, you know, blow to Draper Kaufman, who, you know, his entire life, all he's ever wanted to do is be like his dad, who's a famous destroyer skipper. You know, he's a, you know, surface surface fleet sailor. That's all Draper wants to be. And then suddenly, he's cut off from his dream job. So, you know, he spends the next five years just kind of trying to figure out what to do with himself. He's working for a shipping company, he manages to get himself sent over to Germany, where he witnesses a couple of speeches by Adolf Hitler, realizes this. Man is a monster just from the tempo of his speeches. He can't speak German, but he realizes that this is a this is a threat to the world. So he comes back. He wants to volunteer for the uh the French army. The only thing that he can do as an American and the, you know, in the French Army is volunteer for the ambulance corps, which is mentioned a lot. People talk about Draper's biography, but they don't You know, mention is that Draper had to, it's not like you, you signed up for the French army. He had to pay the French army to join and he had to pay them, you know, it was essentially the cost of a house uh, to join. So he, he bankrupts himself just for the opportunity to fight against the Germans. He becomes an ambulance driver like Hemingway in World War I, and he lands in his uh, first assignment on the day that the Germans invade in 1940. And so he, you know, a handful of Americans he gets to see, or he's a participant in the war, literally the war's opening days, and fights continually, pushes himself out there rescuing French soldiers, and in the process of this, he comes across this unit that he really respects called the Corps Franc. Really, their only motto was we never leave a man behind, and Draper sort of adopts that uh, philosophy for himself and finds himself rescuing uh, French soldiers behind enemy lines and predictably gets captured by the Germans and stuffed in a POW camp. The only way that the Germans ultimately let him go is if he promises that he'll never take up arms against the German Empire again. He signs the paperwork, he gets released. The only country that he's allowed to go to is the United States. Of course, he jumps on a Portuguese freighter sailing for Great Britain and enlists immediately in the Royal Navy. (laughs) But the Royal Navy, they block him too from service in the Royal Navy from a ship because of his eyesight. So he does the next uh, most dangerous thing. He volunteers for British bomb disposal and he uh, fights throughout the Blitz doing nothing but disarming bombs. Ultimately, he gets pulled back into the American Navy, not necessarily against his will because he's always wanted to come back to the American Navy, but it's a pretty dramatic. He gets pulled back in. He ends up going out to Pearl Harbor right right after the attack, disarming a bomb, making a huge name for him himself winning a navy cross and he's placed in charge of the navy's bomb disposal group where he Comes up with he he knows that this is you know really really dangerous really hard work and he he needs to create a curriculum as quickly as possible that can prepare his men to take out of the obstacles that Hitler is setting up on the beaches in France and Belgium. So he he goes to the Scouts and Raiders School in Fort Pierce, Florida. He he sees their eight week curriculum, their eight week conditioning curriculum, which is boat races, telephone pole type calisthenics. It's all sorts of you know sort of miserable things that uh, the Scouts and Raiders have come up. With. But it's a, you know, it's an eight week period. Kaufman knows he doesn't have eight weeks to prepare his men. So what he does, the next best thing is he compresses all eight weeks of these calisthenics and into a single horrible week that we now know is hell week. And it's a, you know, a sleepless five days. He sends a couple of groups through this program and it's, you know, he loses more than half of them each time he does it. And ultimately being Kaufman, uh, he can't do anything but submit himself to the own course. And he puts himself through Hell Week. He has his guys running through it. Everybody thinks the entire time. He's not an athlete. He's not not anywhere close to what you'd uh, consider a, uh, a frogman today. And he makes it through his own program and he creates the men, ultimately, that lead the uh, invasion into Omaha Beach and uh, Utah Beach in Normandy. All right, so this bookish guy with bad eyesight was the one who created Hell Week. Yeah, <laughs> you can <laughs> yeah. believe it. It's kind of a combination of the scouts and raiders who had, you know, they'd come up with the individual, you know, evolutions. And then Draper Kaufman, who has the idea to put it all together. And the reason he wants to put all this stuff together is he's trying to recreate the hell of combat that he has experienced. And he knows combat better than anybody else in the U.S. military at that point. He knows, you know, how little sleep you get during it, how little food you can never, you're going to be constantly wet, cold, miserable, chafed. And he's trying to put guys through that uh, just like he experienced it in France and in the Blitz.
0: So what was their, what was their job, the, uh, the naval combat demolition units? What were they
1: doing at, uh, on D-Day? Their explicit mission was that they were to destroy the obstacles on Hitler's Atlantic Wall. And obstacles were a variety of things. And the Germans had ingeniously placed these obstacles in the surf zone, so they were impervious to destruction by American bombers. You, you can't blow up something if it's underwater, at least from a, a, with a bomber. The Navy knew that they were going to have to uh, remove each of these obstacles by hand. So that's what Draper was preparing them for. So n- after their this Hell Week period, they, they got a very intense course on all the bomb disposal work that he had been doing in uh, Britain. And then, you know, not just bomb disposal, but you know learning how to blow up obstacles and all various types. And so this was a big success, right? Like they... They, it actually worked what they were doing. It, it was a monumental success when you saw you know how terrible the combat was at Omaha Beach, and you saw all the naval units that were had been engaged in that combat, and and you saw how well the NCDU's performed. Where where you have the the army planners that are disbanding ranger units um, or the Marine Corps disbanding Raider units because they don't perform effectively after Omaha Beach, the Navy commander puts the uh, ncdus in for one of three naval issued presidential unit citations and the navy seeing how well that this curriculum does they can't bring themselves to disband it so even though the the mission that the ncdus have been created for is no longer there i mean the hitler's atlantic wall has been breached the the navy realizes that you know there's lots of opportunities for combat left in this war we're not getting rid of this program Yeah, so then they started getting shifted to the Pacific Theater. What were they doing there? So like I said, each of these units gets created for a slightly different reason. So in the Pacific, it's always been said that the underwater demolition teams are created after the horrible battle at uh, Tarawa in which uh, the most dominant uh, feature of that battle is this uh, coral reef that prevents the landing craft from landing the marines at the beach, which is true, but not exactly, because the, they had anticipated that this coral reef was going to block them at Tarawa, so they had created, or they had uh, repurposed this sort of amphibious tractor to carry the marines in. In fact, these amphibious tractors are LVTs. They lead the invasion into Tarawa. The problem is that the Navy doesn't like carrying these things. They're They're, they're very slow; they delay everything from fighter aircraft, bomber aircraft, and naval gunfire. They're just cumbersome to carry on ships, so the Navy would much rather carry these Higgins boats because they're faster. They can resupply better. So the Marine Corps, you know, sees this coral as a problem. Where there's a technical solution. You know, just bring more LVTs. The Navy sees the coral as a cancer that it wants to cut out. Nobody wants to do that more than this guy, Admiral Kelly Turner, who's the commander of the Fifth Amphibious Force. He's probably the most cantankerous, frustrated person in the history of the Navy frustrated is not the right word. He's a he's a frustrated general. He he has this idea that the Marine Corps is, uh, is the Navy's to command, and that she, he should be in command of all Marine Corps operations, even when they're ashore. And the thing that really bothers him is when he can't get uh, the Marine Corps to let him use the Marine Corps' reconnaissance troops to figure out where the coral is, so he can plan his invasions around it. So his solution to that is to create his own reconnaissance troops, and that's how the UDT are created. So the UDT aren't quite created to destroy obstacles because the Japanese weren't putting obstacles up like the Germans were on the Atlantic Wall. There's just there's just this problem of coral, and a and an equally bigger problem that the Marine Corps won't let the Navy <laughs> be in charge of its own reconnaissance or its its Marine Corps reconnaissance trip. So Kelly Turner. It's like, well, if you're not going to let me have yours, I'm going to make my own. And he does. He creates uh the underwater demolition teams and creates them right about the same time. He's getting ready to send them on their first real underwater demolition mission when Draper Kaufman shows up. So Draper Kaufman, who's the founder of Hell Week and the NCDUs, he shows up in the Pacific right at the same time, and he leads these UDTs into Saipan proves their indispensability. And not only that, but proves their indispensability at Tinian, which essentially means that the UDT are going to be a permanent fixture in the Navy's order of battle until the end of time, or at least until the end of amphibious warfare. Navy won't go anywhere without the UDTs after that.
0: Was there any moments during the Pacific Theater where you saw the UDTs, like they weren't just demolishing...
1: Coral, but they were actually going on land and. Doing. There were, yeah, there were there were instances. I mean, there were instances of NCDUs going ashore and uh, going past the beachhead in, in Normandy. There's a couple instances where the UDTs are doing the same thing. The first UDTs, the UDTs one and two, they actually were. A hodgepodge, not just of Navy sailors and NCDU guys, but they were Navy Seabees, they were uh, they were Marines, they were Army soldiers. They'd come up with this hodgepodge unit because they were valuable as demolitioners. They were going ashore and helping the Army blow up bunkers and everything else. Once the UDT has become an all Navy unit, then they really, uh, the Navy is really trying to keep them from going ashore. And a handful of UDT swimmers that actually do go ashore and follow the Marines on Saipan, Kaufman gives them a, uh, a choice of either leaving the UDT forever. Or uh, spending five days on burial duty, and uh, they pick uh, they pick the burial duty. Kaufman, I think he keeps them, he he makes them do three days, and then he pulls them back.
0: Yeah, okay. So the UDD, this was a successful thing. Like unlike other things in the army and the Marines, like this was an actual success. What happened after World War II? Like where did I mean, if they didn't disband them, what were what was the Navy doing with these guys?
1: Right. So after World War II, World War II ends. Every American special operations unit, every Raider unit, is disbanded by December of 1945. I think the the last Ranger battalions disbanded in December of 45. So there's n- there's no more commandos in the U.S. military. The only special operations unit to survive disbandment after World War II is the UDTs. So. When uh, the Korean War starts and all the, you know, the, the, the army is getting kicked to hell all the way back to the Pusan perimeter. The Navy's trying to, uh, everybody's trying to think of anything that they can possibly do to, you know, to stop this route, to help cut the knees out of the Koreans that are forcing them back. So the Navy, seeing the geography of Korea, sees that, uh, you know, there's mountains in the center and that all the highways and railways are sort of pushed to the edge of the, of the peninsula, which affords the Navy this huge opportunity to, you know, start bombarding railways or sending, surprising sailors ashore to blow up tunnels, blow up bridges, blow up whatever they can to halt the supplies that are supplying the North Koreans that are threatening to push the uh, Americans and South Koreans into the sea. So the only units that are available at this time that are actually in-country are the UDT. So the the first raiders to go ashore in the Korean War, uh, not exactly the first, but the first ones that are continually used are these UDTs who've never been trained to do it. They're beach markers, cable layers, They're, they, they've, they've never done this before. So their, their first raids are predictably amateurish, but they quickly figure out how to do this. Just out of necessity. All
0: right, so the Korean War pushed these guys further and
1: further inland, basically. Yeah, and it proves that, uh, the Navy needs a force like this. So the Incheon invasion presents an opportunity for not just a, you know, hydrographic reconnaissance, which is what the UDTs have perfected in World War II, but it, it you know, because of the, the, the layout of Incheon, it's a, it's a harbor cluttered with these, cluttered with these small little islands. And there's pockets uh, of troops that are, you know, hostile to the North Koreans, hostile to communists. So. The the Navy sees an opportunity, or the Navy and the CIA, they see an opportunity to send a couple of guys into these islands to mobilize some resistance. And not just that, but to get information about what the actual port of Incheon looks like. Because nobody really, I mean, some people know, but there's not charts. There's not a lot of intelligence to support the invasion, so they send one American naval officer and a handful of uh, South Korean sailors to mobilize a guerrilla band of raiders to go from island to island, get as much intelligence as possible, and then send that in- information back to the fleet. And the only way that they're able to do this, and the naval officer that they pick, is just this uh, one of the probably the Forrest Gump of the Korean War. He manages to be everywhere, at least for the Navy in the those uh, uh, that initial year. He collects all this information but does it by raiding island after island after island with his ragtag group of Korean guerrillas. And at the end of this two-week-long you know, series of raids, he ultimately lights the way for the entire landing fleet by climbing to the top of this uh, abandoned lighthouse and lighting the wick. So
0: we have the, the UDTs going further and further inland because of the Korean War. So the Korean War ends kind of... It's like, well, for all intents and purposes, it was over. And then during the 60s, you start seeing the buildup to the Vietnam War. And this is when you start seeing the UDT transform and actually turn into what we now know as the SEALs. What was
1: going on there? And when did we start actually calling these guys Navy SEALs? There's sort of a lot going on in this interwar period. Everybody's trying to figure out. uh, So the Army after the Korean War... So there's this whole experience with the Rangers in Korea as well, where the Rangers are recreated, the army recreates them, and they ultimately decide they don't want Rangers, they want some sort of a force that can go in and mobilize an entire population or, you know, something more akin to the OSS, uh, Jedbergs in World War II. So the, the idea of guerrilla war, counter guerrilla war is sort of on everybody's mind. Everybody's, you know, sort of thinking because there's now nuclear weapons are, they're, they're a part of strategic decision making. They've, uh, sort of forced an uncomfortable truce between major powers. So now combat's being pushed back down into the mud. It's being fought by proxies and guerrilla units. So in the 19, 19- 60s, or in the in the late 1950s, a couple of people are noticing this. Probably best of all, and as far as the Navy goes, the the one who notices this uh, and then you know reorients the Navy to deal with it is Chief of Naval Operations at the time, who is uh, Arlie Burke. Who is if there is a, he's probably the most consequential personality when it comes to the creation of the SEAL team. He's, he's never been a member of any of the the Navy's elite branches. He's never been a pilot. He's never been a submariner. He was never in the UDT. He never does anything in World War II that would suggest that he was going to be an advocate for, you know, guerrilla or counter-guerrilla or commando type operations. The one thing that is distinct about Early Burke is that he is a he's a surface sailor, but he is as aggressive uh, a sailor or commander as anyone since uh, John Paul Jones. He is, you know, in, in each interwar period, everybody's always predicting that the Navy's going to be relegated to become sort of a, a merchant marine because the Air Force can transport troops better than the Navy can. There aren't any, you know, massive navies like the German Navy or the Japanese Navy, so you don't need as many destroyers and submarines and all the all the rest. Arlie Burke doesn't see that, you know, future for the Navy. Arlie Burke sees a Navy as offensively oriented as any that he served with in, in World War II. So he refuses to consign the Navy to that future. So he's constantly looking for opportunities to push his men or his sailors ashore to find and chase the enemy wherever the enemy goes. So even before Kennedy comes into office, everybody attributes all the creation of special operations or special forces to Kennedy. But Burke is already orienting his staff to come up with plans to create a unit that can sort of be the focal point of all the Navy's previous unconventional warfare experiences. You know, the scouts and raiders, the NCDUs, the UDTs, the, the Navy's uh, guerrillas in China during World War II. He's funneling all these things into one you know, single compact unit. One of the reports that I found, or I stumbled across, and at the Navy Yard, you can see the first instance where they are proposing what to call this unit, and the guy just sort of casually, you know, says this this unit could be called a SEAL unit, you know, for their sort of universal capability, and you know, SEAL being a contraction of sea, air, and land. All right, so that's the
0: creation of the SEALs,
1: but then they when they first
0: start seeing action, that's the Vietnam War. That's when they're put to the test, right?
1: Yeah, and it's, it doesn't go well. <laughs> so they, they, I mean, the the Navy had under Arlie Burke anyway. The Navy had never really had a desire to create a, a version of the Army Special Forces. They didn't really want to create like uh, guerrilla leaders or anything like that. The Navy, in keeping with the Navy's raiding, you know, throughout history, the Navy wants commanders. They want raiders. They want guys that can, you know, land on a coast, raid an installation. And then escape back to the to sea. So that's how the seals are originally oriented. And each one of these direct action or commando type missions, the seals are raiding like a command post or a, uh, a naval battery or a truck park or something like that. Some some installation. And when the seals show up in Vietnam, there isn't any of those. <laughs> Vietnam, they don't have. You know, there's no there's no infrastructure there. So the the first SEAL commander who shows up, he leads his men in, into these patrols into the swamps of the the Rung Sat Special Zone, which is this little corner of tidewater just to the south and east of Saigon. And like I said, they don't find any of the stuff that they've been training to uh, take out. So he <laughs> he, I think he he starts going into Saigon. He ends up shacking up with the nurse. All of his guys end up trying to do the same thing. And the Navy planners see what these SEALs are doing, and they. Predictably, you know, outraged. I can't believe that there's a Navy unit that's not contributing to the mission, even though the mission hasn't been particularly defined for them. So the Navy's ready to kick the SEALs out of the country, and who knows what would have happened to the SEALs, whether they would have gotten disbanded like all the other units in special operations. It, it's hard to know. What we do know is that they didn't, and the reason that they didn't is because the person in charge. Of all UDT and SEALs at that time was this guy named Phil Bucklew, who had risen to command them. Who himself had been one of the the Navy's first scouts and raiders, and then you know after he had proven himself as one of the you know Navy's best beach markers, he had gotten sent to China where he had led guerrillas the last year of uh, World War II. So the decision ultimately falls to this this one person, this this one sailor who never served a day on a ship. And he decides. Well, he says, "Let's uh, let's give the seals a second chance. We're going to change the leadership and see if we can't fix it." And uh, they send in a, a new commander for a new detachment. And that new detachment, they they essentially arrive in Vietnam. Commander looks at you know his men. And he says, "This isn't the war we pl- we we planned for. This isn't the war we trained for. But this is the only war in town, and we're not going to let it go to waste." And uh, night after night after night he sends his guys into the swamp and they they learn how to become what they never thought that they would become and that's these gorilla hunters essentially and how did the seals change after vietnam after vietnam i i don't know that they have i mean i think that the the seal teams are essentially what they became you know in 1968 i mean the the center of gravity is still about the same i mean we're 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 on the cusp of a probably a, a new shift in, in what seals are just because we're starting to move away. We're, we're, we've moved away from Afghanistan, moved away from Iraq. Likely that we're going to be at least orienting more toward these, you know, the our, you know, traditional big power adversaries like China and Russia. So it'll be interesting to see what the SEALs are ultimately become. But if uh, combat moves inland again, I mean, just knowing what I know of the SEAL teams, knowing what their, you know, their, you know, cultural center of gravity is, what their history is, you know, knowing that they're, they have this, you know, sort of insatiable bias for action. I, I don't, uh, I don't see the SEALs. Changing much, I think they'll adapt as they always have. But that, uh, like I said, like I said, that you know, the seals become the seals. I mean, the seals are created in '62, but they don't really become the seals that we know today. You know, the go anywhere capture co commando force until like 1968. Uh, that's where the institution hardens into what it is. It took a long time. Even that,
0: there was all those different iterations, and it all came together slowly.
1: Yeah, it does, and it doesn't happen because anybody's like, like I said, nobody's nobody has a vision for it. You know, each instance where you know the Army Rangers or the Marine Corps Raiders or the Army Rangers again or Army Special Forces or Army Partisans or whatever, each of the people that that come along, whether it's Carlson, Petticord, Darby. John McGee in, in Korea, Aaron Bank after Korea, they all sort of have these castles in their mind of what they want to create. And they have, they've got, uh, you know, elaborate objectives for these missions, elaborate organizational charts to go with them. You know, everybody that creates these Army or Marine Corps units, they're very entrepreneurial. They just seem to always have been just slightly ahead of their time. Whereas the Navy, you don't really have a a plan. I don't know if that's a feature of the Navy being so bad at history or so bad at forward planning, but they're just, you know, solving incremental issues. And it just sort of, it didn't happen accidentally because, you know, the Navy was very decisive. There was always somebody that was decided that the Navy was going to move in, you know, a certain direction. But it is a bit haphazard, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? I have a limited social media presence. I'm on Instagram, Milligan 3 i got three little guys. And then I'm on Twitter, Ben H. Milligan. The book, though, is available on Amazon. I've signed copies that are available through my local bookstore here, Prairie Path Books. Well, Ben Milligan, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. It's been great.
0: Had fun. My guest today was Benjamin Billigan. He's the author of the book By Water Beneath the Walls. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Make sure to check out our show notes at aom.is seals where you can find links to resources and we delve deeper into this topic. <laughs> Well, that wraps up another edition of the A1 Podcast. Make sure to check our website at artofmanlius.com where you can find our podcast archives, as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the A1 Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code Manliness at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS, and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the A1 Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think we get something out of it as always thank you for the continued support until next time is brett mckay reminding you to not only listen to anyone podcast but put what you've heard into action